0: Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Moving along in Genesis, talking about Abraham. Last week, we talked about God's covenant with Abraham. This week, we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's review a little bit of last week's lesson before we tackle today's material. When Abram asked God for additional confirmation that God would keep his covenant promises to Abram, God took part in a treaty ceremony with Abram. But what was so striking about this ceremony? What was different about this ceremony as might happen normally? Yes, Uh, Dwayne? Very good. Thank you, Dwayne. Passing through the animals, which was a way to say if I break the covenant, let me be destroyed just like these animals were, only God walked through. So by doing that, he was affirming a unilateral covenant, an unconditional covenant, one that he was taking full responsibility to keep. It was not based on Abram's performance. If it didn't matter then what Abram did for God to stay true to his promises to Abram, then what was the point of circumcision? Why circumcision? Yes, or what? Right, it was just a, a, a sign, a reminder of that, that covenant. And there, we're going to see later on in the Old Testament more about how it's going to, a mark of the set-apartness of Abraham's descendants and of the Hebrew people. But primarily it is a sign of the covenant that Abraham was to pass down to his descendants. And one you be reminded of this covenant, reminded of my faithfulness to the covenant, and you're going to have a physical sign on yourself and on your descendants. Circumcision was not... We emphasized this last week. It was not a prerequisite for the covenant. Nor is it necessary for Abram to be made righteous. What was it that made Abram righteous? His faith, faith, right? He believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. In this way, Abram became the father of all who believe by faith and are made righteous. All who are saved, including us today. We are saved just like Abraham was. Now, does this mean, and I didn't... Explored this specifically last week, but perhaps it was implied. Does this mean that we are inheritors of the Abrahamic covenant? Are we inheritors? Are we heirs to the Abrahamic covenant? That may seem a little bit difficult to answer right away. There are aspects of God's covenant with Abram that cannot apply to us, They do not apply to us, since we are not Abraham's physical descendants. We are not Israel, nor are we guaranteed the physical land of Israel, like his physical descendants were. Though we will be rulers of God's millennial kingdom, based in Jerusalem, when that comes. However, we must understand the ultimate promise of the Abrahamic covenant. All these blessings that were given to Abraham, they climax in one specific statement from God, or one promise from God, which is said explicitly in Genesis 17:7, 7, where God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So while there are physical aspects of the Abrahamic covenant that we cannot inherit, the spiritual aspects we obviously do inherit. God says, I, my covenant is to be your God. The covenant I'm making, the everlasting covenant, is ultimately to be your God, and to be God to your descendants. God says, I choose to be your God, I choose to reveal myself to you, and give you the faith to believe in me, and this has nothing to do with your own merit. It's a unilateral covenant. And if we believe in and love Jesus Christ, this is what we have inherited. Galatians 3.29 makes the connection between us and Abraham very, very strong, because it says this, if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. So Abraham's descendants do include his spiritual descendants. He was a father of many nations, not physically, but spiritually. We are Abraham's offspring, and therefore inheritors of the covenant of blessing. Abraham's God is our God. God has unilaterally chosen that for us. Some other quick clarifications of last week's lesson. We spoke briefly at the end of class about the connection between Abram's covenant ceremony and circumcision or Abraham's covenant ceremony circumcision and the work of Christ. It is right for us to see Christ in circumcision. Circumcision was not only a sign of God's unilateral promises to Abram, it's also a picture of the gospel. I said a little bit about this last week. Parts of us, according to the gospel, must be cut away. The cutting away of the outer flesh is really to show our need for our inner selves. To be circumcised. Our hearts must be circumcised. The sin there must be cut away. But how? How can we be circumcised in heart? What can accomplish this for us? And what does God do with our sin? He can't simply hide it. It must be paid for. So God's son himself had to be cut off to make for us new hearts in order to accomplish the cutting away in our hearts. To put to death sin in us and to give us eternal life. This is also why we don't need to circumcise anymore. The sign has already found its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, and therefore it's unnecessary, like the other pictures of the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus. That being said, it's not accurate to say, I think, that Abram's treaty ceremony is a picture of the work of the cross. I had said something to the effect last week, but on further reflection I want to say something different. Since the whole point of the ceremony, that is walking through the split animals in Genesis 15, is that it's unilateral, not based on Abraham's performance, it doesn't make sense for us to say that God had to suffer the penalty for Abram's breaking of the covenant on the cross. Because the whole point of the ceremony is that this covenant is unbreakable. Abraham can't do anything to break the covenant. So that's why only God walks through. But, as we said, there is another aspect to it that is gospel-related, that is that God takes full responsibility for the covenant. God's the one who's totally going to keep it. And that's what he's done with us as heirs according to the promise through Christ. Also, I wanted to say, just to reemphasize something that we touched on a little bit at the end of last week's lesson. While it is true that some of God's covenants or agreements with man involve blood and sacrifices. Not all of them do. The Davidic covenant, for example, where God promises that David's descendants will sit on the throne of Israel, it's not sealed in blood. However, anytime time there's a promise related to cleansing or covering for sin, you can be sure that death and blood are involved. As Hebrew 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So I wanted to mention those things. Any comments or questions related to last week's lesson? All right, well, we turn our attention now to Sodom and Gomorrah, infamous cities described in Genesis. Understand that this section of Genesis does not merely give us arbitrary details about God judging certain ancient cities. They just happened to mention Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were destroyed. No. The example of Sodom and Gomorrah is one to which the Bible is continually going to make reference. It's going to keep going back to these cities and talking about them or comparing other cities to them. Sodom and Gomorrah become bywords, names that instantly bring to mind extreme sin and perversion and God's necessary and holy judgment. We must realize, however, the account of these cities and their doom was given specifically for our instruction. So let's not miss out on what God has for us in this section of Genesis. This morning, as we learn about the original Sodom and Gomorrah, I pray that you will be moved to godly fear of the one, of the holy, holy one with whom we have to do. I also pray that you'll be moved to glad thankfulness when you see the loving heart of God that saves His righteous ones from judgment. Those are my goals for today. I have a lot to share with you, so please hold your questions and comments till the end. I want to make sure we have enough time. Let's pray before we go on. Lord God, I pray that you would give me the ability to explain clearly and explain well this great section of your scripture. Lord, I pray that we would see you as more beautiful, more lovely, more worthy of worship, because you are, and we just want to behold you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be looking at two main sections of scripture today, but before we get there, I want you to turn your Bibles to Genesis 13. It says, where Sodom is mentioned. I don't know if it's the first mentioning, but it might be the first mentioning, one of the first. Sodom is mentioned when Abram and Lot are about to split. So I want us to read about that. If you recall, Abram's servants and Lot's servants were quarreling because they had gotten so big, both of their attachments of servants and livestock had gotten so big that they were beginning to quarrel with one another about the land. So let's pick up the account in verse 8 of Genesis 13. We'll read down to 13. 13 verses 8 to 13. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. All right, we'll stop there. Some quick observations of this text. What land did Lot choose for for himself? That's right, all the valley of the Jordan, all the valley of the Jordan. What did Lot notice about this land that made him choose it? It was well-watered. And there's a number of descriptions about how well-watered it was, like the Garden of the Lord, like this very well-watered section of Egypt. But then notice this information set off by dashes. Right after it says the land was well-watered, it says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. By grammatically inserting this information right after saying the land was well watered, what is the author implying? Yes, Julie. That's right. Something must have changed because that's a qualifying statement. This land was well watered. Oh, by the way, this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That implies that something had changed in the area. It might not be the same, or it's it's not the same by the time the Israelites are moving into that land. Now, what is the Valley of the Jordan? Well, let's learn a little bit of topography. Here's a topographical map of Palestine. and Hopefully you can see it just a little bit, even with the glares. The green does not represent vegetation. It represents low elevation. and the browns and the yellows, that's higher elevation, with white being the highest. Can you guess where the Jordan Valley is? Well, maybe... Maybe you're able to see it. But we would want something that looks low elevation. Where's the Jordan Valley in relation to the geography of Israel? Not the left side, actually. That would be be where Abram ends up settling. Because Lot is going to journey east. Jordan Valley is this whole section on the eastern part of Israel. This whole section of green. I don't know if you can see it there. But it encompasses the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It's the whole eastern section of Israel along the border of Jordan, the Jordan Valley. Today, called the Jordan Rift Valley, it runs along Israel's entire eastern border. The river, the Jordan River, begins at the top of the valley, above the Sea of Galilee, flows into the Sea of Galilee, then flows out of the bottom of the Sea of Galilee towards the Dead Sea, where it ends. Now, is the Jordan Valley well watered today, like the Garden of the Lord? Well, let's take a look at another image. Hopefully you're able to see it. So there's the Dead Sea there at the bottom, and it's kind of dark there at the top. But would you say that the Jordan Valley is well watered today? Certainly not all of it, right? You can't really see the Sea of Galilee because of the the way the image appears with the projector, but it's nice and green around that, that section. Towards the Dead Sea, though, it's all brown. So certainly it's not well-watered, except for maybe one part. Not well-watered today. Now, where exactly are Sodom and Gomorrah then? Or where were they? We don't know for sure, but we do know that it was in this valley, the Jordan Valley, and probably somewhere around the Dead Sea. Archaeologists have suggested a number of different sites for Sodom and Gomorrah, two in particular, one in the northeast section of the Sea of, or the Dead Sea, and one in the southeast section. Digs in these areas have yielded surprising amounts of ash layered in the soil, huge amounts, and bits of pottery that were obviously affected by sudden and intense heat. And morphed the pottery in such a way that it wasn't just like a slow-burning heat source, but a sudden flash of heat. We'll talk more about the archaeology of these cities and trying to identify where Sodom is in the upcoming Sunday school class the summer but for now just know that Sodom and Gomorrah were probably around the Dead Sea Now even before Lot sets out for Sodom Moses tells us about the city's character Sodom was already known as a city of what kind of people extremely sinful it says exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord Wait don't those mean the same thing why the repetition That's right. It's to show the extreme nature of their sin. It's for emphasis. Remember, repetition in the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, a lot of times it's just for emphasis. Extremely wicked. Now, let's jump to Genesis 18. This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. The Lord has confirmed his promises to Abraham now in various ways and tells Abraham that the patriarch will have a son through Sarah in one year. In the beginning of chapter 18, the Lord himself visits Abraham with two angels. This is the angel of the Lord. God himself appears to Abraham. God appears as a man. We won't read the beginning section, so I'm summarizing it for you. God appears as a man and eats a meal that the hospitable Abraham has prepared. But how can God, who is spirit, who later says, no one can see my face and live, how can he appear to Abraham? How can he appear as a man? How can he even eat something? Because if you eat real food, that means you must have a real body. God here has flesh and bone. How is that possible? Well, many biblical interpreters see this encounter as an example of a theophany, or a Christophany. That is, this is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is God's Son meeting with Abraham. Only the Son is the mediator between God and man. Therefore, it makes sense to see this appearance as the Son of God, in a temporary but real human body, conversing with Abraham. This is Christ. Now, God the Son tells Abraham that Abraham will have a son at about this same time next year. And then God tells Abraham what God is about to do concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's where I want us to read together. Look down to verse 16. We're going to read to verse 33. Chapter 18, verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away, and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Let's start our analysis of this passage with some observational questions. As he is about to leave Abraham, our Lord says something curious. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? It's a rhetorical question. No, he's not going to hide from Abraham what he's about to do. What is the reasoning that God mentions for not hiding his plans from Abraham? That's right. We see the word since there, and we also see the word for, so we're getting some purposes for it. I think we can summarize it in this way. God's going to reveal his plan to Abraham because God has chosen to bless Abraham. He says, I've chosen to make his name great, chosen to make him a great nation. I've chosen to uh, cause him to be righteous. I've chosen him. Therefore, I'm going to tell him what I'm doing. I've chosen to bless Abraham. Therefore, I'm going to tell him what I'm doing. Now, what does God say he is about to do? What does he specifically say he's going to do? Uh, uh, like a new, uh, uh, covenant? Well, he's not speaking so much about the new covenant right now, but that is true, Carol. That is something that's going to be Expand it on more as we go through the scriptures. God's saying something about Sodom, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God say he's going to do? That's right. He says, I'm just going to go and observe it. I've heard this outcry about their sin. I want to go see for it myself. See it for myself. Now, when God says this, notice the question that Abraham asks will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God didn't say he was going to destroy Sodom. What has Abraham assumed if he's asking that question? What's that? He's assuming that God's going to find it to be just as bad as he's heard, just as bad as the outcry is, and that judgment will come, and therefore he's going to appeal to God about that judgment. When Abraham asks God this question, he gives God a theoretical situation. Suppose there are 50 righteous people in Sodom. Will you destroy those 50 righteous along with the wicked? By asking this second question, Abraham is making an appeal to an aspect of God's character. Which aspect? I hear whispering it. What is it? His, his mercy may be a little bit related, but specifically his justice. Right? Because he says at the end of that that appeal, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? It's not right for you to treat the righteous and the wicked uh, the same. That would be unjust. But you are just God. God says back, when he says, will you destroy 50 righteous along with all the wicked? He says, I won't. If there are 50 righteous in the city, I will not destroy anyone in the city. I will not destroy the city at all. But Abraham doesn't stop there. He asks about the same situation with slightly less people, starting at 45, then 40, then 30, eventually getting down to what number? 10. Asked if he'll withhold judgment on the whole city for the sake of just 10, God says he will withhold judgment. He will not destroy anyone if there are 10 righteous people there. At this, Abram says no more and the Lord departs. Now let's ask some more interpretive questions. Why? Does Abraham make these requests on behalf of Sodom if Sodom is such a wicked city? Certainly, that has to be part of it. That has to be part of it, or perhaps the main part of it, that he knows his nephew Lot lives in Sodom. He's concerned about his nephew. I think you can also make the argument that he has compassion on the people of Sodom. He's interacted with some of them before. Remember when he went to rescue Lot, he also rescued some of the, uh, I think, the people and property of Sodom. And there's just a, a sympathy for those people. You can make that argument. But certainly, Abraham is concerned about Lot. After all, he did rescue Lot before. So this is not who's like, oh, it's my relative, whatever. No, he cares about Lot. And at the end of this account... At the end of chapter 19, and at this account of uh, Sodom, that's not the end of the chapter of 19, but the end of this account about Sodom, it says this, Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So That verse tells you why God saves Lot. It's because of Abraham. It's because... God has a covenant with Abraham because God listens to Abraham's intercession and therefore he saves Lot. So Abraham cares about Lot and therefore he makes intercession for the city of Sodom. Now God says the reason he will visit Sodom is to see if the outcry he has heard about the city is accurate. But we know that God is omniscient. He does not need to personally visit anything to know about the place. So why does God then want to personally visit Sodom? What's the point? what will God accomplish with a personal visit? Certainly, on the one hand, it's about Lot. Because we're going to see, as we read the next section, it's a very personal rescue. It's a very compassionate and tender rescue of Lot and his family. But also, what we see God doing here is very consistent with the way that God tests. The way that God tests people Even when we talked about Job, remember we said, I'm going to, or it looked like, from the outside perhaps, that God is testing Job to see what Job would do. But God already knows what Job would do. But what does he accomplish by testing people? He shows that person, and he shows anyone around that person, what's really in their hearts. So God is going to do something similar with Sodom. By personally visiting the city, by personally showing everyone what's really going on in Sodom, people will know just how wicked the city is. Well, they'll know whether it's wicked and just how bad. Now, Abraham asserts that God does not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. That's the whole basis of his appeal. But is that true? Does God treat the righteous and the wicked alike? Or is that untrue? do you think? Yeah, really. Right. There are certain graces that he does give to everyone, right? But there are also certain things that he only does for the righteous. So in answering this question, though there is an aspect, yes, where God is going to do the same for everyone... It is true that God does not treat the righteous and the wicked alike. In fact, that was one of the central questions of the book of Job. That's why Job was up in arms. He's like, I don't understand. God is punishing the righteous, but he's letting the wicked go unpunished. That doesn't make sense to me. It's true that God does provide good things for both the righteous and the wicked. It's also true that both the righteous and the wicked will experience hardships in this world. It's true that God gives everyone or God holds everyone in the earth accountable for turning to him, believing in him, repenting, obeying God. But God does not treat the righteous and the wicked the same. As Proverbs says, God is opposed to the proud, yet gives grace to the humble. That's a big distinction, right? The proud, I'm going to oppose them. I'm treating them differently than I treat the humble. Now, we may not always see how God is opposing the proud or how God is giving grace to the humble, but we know that he is. This was the lesson of Job, or one of the lessons. This principle is even clearer when it comes to the judgment of God. Abraham asserts it would be contrary to God's character to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked in judgment. And that is completely true. In fact, we see that principle on display many times in the scriptures. Where's another place? Where God brings judgment, but he makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Where else do we see that in the Bible? The flood, right? Very clear example. God doesn't say, well, the whole world's wicked, and sorry, Noah, I just have to get rid of you too. No, he says, I'm going to protect Noah. I'm going to take the righteous man, I'm going to take his family, I'm going to preserve them from this judgment, and I'm going to destroy everyone else. What's another example Can you give me a more specific explanation? Um, Ah, great. That's a great example. So he talked about Caleb and Joshua and the Israelites in the wilderness. Remember, the spies go into the land. They bring back a bad report, but Caleb and Joshua say, no, come on, we got the Lord on our side. We can go take this land. But the Israelites don't listen to them, and they refuse to go into the promised land. So God judges Israel. He says, I will not let any of you go into the promised land except Caleb and Joshua doesn't say, sorry, guys, the rest of your group, they messed up, so you can't go in either. He says, no, you are righteous. I will not curse you with this judgment. You will go into the land, but not the rest of the Israelites. We see other examples. Rahab and Jericho, right? We hear about Rahab's faith later in the New Testament. She's not destroyed along with the rest of the people. She and her family are specifically preserved because she believed in the Lord. Or the plagues of Egypt. Right? God judges the Egyptians, but he withholds those judgments from the Israelites. Makes a distinction. Doesn't send those plagues on the Israelites. Even when Israel, Israel is destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and you have these righteous prophets who are appealing to God to bring Israel to repentance, God says, no, I have to judge Israel, but I will preserve you. Even in the New Testament, we have the parable of the wheat and the tares, Right? The explanation of that parable, the, we, the believers, the tares there, the sons of the devil, and you have these farmers, or these, these servants of the farmer who say, oh, do you want us to go gather the tares? Somebody put them in your, in your farm. Do you want us to gather them up? Get rid of them? He says, no. Why not? Don't gather the tares. Yeah, Rob? Why not? Why, why can't they do that? Exactly. Exactly. He says, you might accidentally rip up some of the wheat. I will not let that happen. Let them both grow together. And then I will take the wheat first, gather that, preserve that, and then I will destroy the tares. And then we also see this in the end times. Even in the last days, in the days of tribulation, we see this principle. Listen uh, Listen to Revelation 3, verse 10. This is spoken to the faithful church of Philadelphia. God says... Christ says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Furthermore, Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. This is God speaking about his judgment on Babylon, the wicked city and its wicked system. God says this in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 18. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. So that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So this is the just character of God. Indeed, far be it from God to sweep away the righteous with the wicked in judgment. He is too good for that. He is too just for that. Again and again in the scriptures, we see God makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, especially in judgment. He will not destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And then, as if it weren't clear enough, there's that section of scripture from Second Peter, which we've looked at before. Remember that section of false teachers? It mentions the angels in the days of Noah who sinned. And then it also mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. Second Peter 2, 4-10. At the very end of that section, after talking about how God judges those wicked angels, wicked people, but preserved Noah and preserved Lot, it says this. This is verse 9 then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. I think that's amazing. I think that just shows the great heart of God. He is faithful to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, especially in judgment. Now, someone might say, well, what about the Christians who get killed along with unbelievers in natural disasters? Didn't God treat them the same way there? Didn't he allow both to perish in a judgment? Well, understand, as I've already said, I'm not saying that God never allows harm or hardship to to come to believers. He does. But we know it's for good and glorious purposes. Romans 8. But we cannot say what is and what is not a judgment of God unless God specifically tells us. You can't look at a natural disaster... Or somebody losing in a war and say God is judging that nation. You don't have the ability to say that. I've said before, and I want to say again: we must understand God does not communicate His approval or disapproval of us at all through circumstances. He only communicates it, communicates to us through scriptures. Otherwise, we would never know what God was really saying, because sometimes the righteous are being tested with trials. Sometimes the wicked are being granted merciful provisions. If they simply look at circumstances, they wouldn't know what God really thought. If the scripture identifies something as a specific act of judgment, you can be sure, in that judgment, God will be careful not to sweep the righteous away along with the wicked. Anyways, that's an important principle. I wanted us not to miss that. But back to Genesis 18. One other question. What is with this drawn out, request from Abraham to God. I mean, if, as you listen to it, maybe some of you started to laugh because it seems a little bit silly. First 50, then 45, then 40. Abraham is so, so hesitant to speak. And perhaps it even sounds a bit tedious. Couldn't Moses have just skipped to the end? Go to the end of the interception where Abraham, intercession where Abraham asked God, what would he do if there were 10 righteous in the city? But that's not the way that God wanted to record what happened. God wanted us to see each step of the intercession. 50, then 45, then 40, then 30, then 20, then 10. Why? Well, think about cities. According to estimates from secular historians and archaeologists, of city sizes around 2000 BC, which would be around where this episode is taking place, between 2000 and 1900 BC, cities are thought to have ranged in population from about 10,000 to about 65,000 people. Now, that could be wrong, but that's that's what modern estimates are. 10,000 to 65,000 people, depending on the location. What does it say about such a city, 10,000 to 65,000 people, if that city only contains 50 righteous persons? Not 50 people who say they believe in God, but 50 actually righteous people who love God and obey Him. What does that say about the city? It's pretty wicked. That's pretty wicked. I mean, even if there are only 10,000 people and there are 50 righteous, that is less than 1%. But if it's more than that, 30,000, 45,000 people, then that looks even more wicked. That city is thoroughly apostate and corrupt. But what does it say about God, however, if he chooses to spare such a city for the sake of 50 righteous people? What's that, Roy? Extremely merciful. Wow. He's going to spare the whole city. He's not going to put any judgment. He's going to stay patient exceedingly with the whole city just because there are 50 righteous people there. That is so merciful. So merciful of God. But then you drop that number by five. If you drop that number by five, how does the city seem now? There are only 45 righteous people in the city. It's extremely wicked, but even more wicked than before. Say, there's not even 50, there's only 45. It's even more wicked than it was. But on the flip side, how does God appear? If he spares the city for the sake of 45, then it's even more merciful. And so on. Same with 40, same with 30, and each number down. It's like with each new threshold, the character of Sodom appears darker and darker, while the righteousness of God appears brighter and brighter. It's almost like the audience can't believe what they're hearing. They're like, wow, I couldn't believe that he would do it for 50. But for 45? For 30? That doesn't even make sense to me. I have to hold your comment to the end, sorry. By the time we get to 10, we should be beside ourselves at the climactic mercy of God in the face of utter wickedness. Ten righteous people in the midst of a whole city of 10,000 or 65,000, God will spare all of them just for the sake of that ten? That's ridiculous. Or it may seem that way, but it's actually just amazing. It's the amazing mercy of God. I think that's what's going on here. Well, let's see what happens. God has made this Promised Abraham, if I find ten righteous, I won't destroy the city. But let's see what God actually finds. Let's look at chapter 19. We'll read verses 1 to 29. Starting in verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside from, into your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters that have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men. Inasmuch, they they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands hands, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Then the two men said to Lot, whom else have you here, a son-in-law and an... And your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought him outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. He said to them, or he said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of that town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he saw and behold the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Okay, a long section. We don't have time to look at it in all its detail, but let's Note a few aspects. What details in this account show the pervasive wickedness of Sodom? What's one detail? Yeah, Julie. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a good observation, Julie. I think indirectly it shows that they've had a bad influence on Lot because that's certainly a wrong thing to do. Lot, You should not be trying to appease them with your daughters. But it also shows just how insistent they are because he said, there's no way I can satisfy them. Maybe I can halt them a little bit by giving my daughters to them. What else? What else shows their great wickedness? Yeah, Danny. Yeah, you'd think, like, you've just been struck blind. Doesn't that mean something to you? But no, they're, they're too, too into their lust. What else? There are a number of other details as well. I mean, their sin is so manifold. They are adulterous lusters. They are going after someone who is not their spouse and looking for sexual fulfillment. They desire to commit homosexual acts. They desire to rape. They resent being rebuked by Lot. They threaten Lot with even worse treatment than what they had planned for the angels. And the whole city is represented in this mob. And we can't say it's literally every person in the city because Job's sons-in-law are not there, and that's not the sense that's, that's meant here. But people from every section of the city, every quarter, every age group, every social station have surrounded the house and made these perverse demands. And as Danny said, even when struck blind, they still try to try so hard to get in. And then, speaking not of the mob, but just of Job's sons, not Job, Lot's sons in law, they won't believe Lot when he says the Lord's going to destroy the city. No, I don't think so. you got to be joking. It's thoroughly, thoroughly wicked. God wants us to see that. But what other details in this account show God's overwhelming mercy to Lot? Yeah, Roy. Yeah. Yeah, that is such a beautiful picture of God's intimate care. They take Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hand and lead them out of the city when Lot hesitates. What else? Yeah, they say, go get your relatives. Go get all the people that you love and that you care about and tell them to get out of the city. In many ways that they and God through them are being merciful and kind They warn Lot. They warn Lot of the judgment. They rescue Lot from the mob by pulling him inside the house and striking the people with blindness. And they urge Lot three times to leave the city, and when he won't, they take him with their own hands. And then when Lot requests to flee to a small town instead of the mountains, they grant him that request. How many righteous people? turn out to be in the whole city of Sodom? I wouldn't say zero, because we have in the New Testament that that Lot is confirmed as a righteous man, but probably just one. You might be able to argue four, because you say, well, what about his wife and his daughters? But they don't actually show very righteous behavior. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. The daughters don't do anything here, but in the next section, they're essentially going to rape their father. We do see Lot acting righteously. Yes, he stumbles too, but he is showing hospitality to the angels. He wants to protect them from the men of the city. He rebukes the men of the city for their wickedness. He seeks to save his sons-in-law's lives. So in the New Testament, Lot is commended as righteous, but we don't see that for anyone else. The city of Sodom was more wicked than could possibly be imagined. Not even ten righteous There was one. And yet, even though God said, I must destroy the city, he says, I will preserve my righteous. I will get him out of the city. I will rescue him. God showed himself faithful to his promise and to his own character, not to treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Now, some may object that it was cruel for God to judge Sodom and Gomorrah this way. Not just them, the surrounding cities of the valley. He obliterated them with fire, killed them all. Some claim that this is inconsistent with a God of love, a God of goodness. He would never punish anyone with death or hell. My God would never do that. Well, how do we respond to such a claim? Yes, God is a God of justice, and he he shows his justice in his great anger over sin, his wrath. And it would be unjust. It would show God to be deficient in character if he did not act in judgment. God is too good. We said this about the flood, but just to remind you, God is too good to let rampant wickedness go. It injures his great heart to see men and women harming one another continually in all the way that sin harms people. For God to sit idly by and to do nothing would be so unloving. Moreover, God is the judge of the universe. What judge will retain any sense of honor if, when confronted with the great crimes of evil, he gives a light punishment, an inadequate punishment, or even no punishment at all? If human judges were to do that, what would we do with them? If they gave an inadequate punishment or no punishment, what would we do with those those human judges? What? That's right, we get rid of them. We say, you're no longer going to be a judge. Or maybe they go to jail. You have transgressed. How much more God, the perfect judge? Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Just as Abraham says. Two final points. We all have heard about Sodom and we've just read the account again, but how do we compare to Sodom? Are we better? Are we just as bad? We might say, well, I never tried to rape anybody. I never tried to commit homosexual acts. I must be better, right? Well, before we can answer accurately that question of how we compare to Sodom, we need to ask, are all the sins the same before God? Or are some sins, some sins worse than others? Well, the answer to that question is Yes. Don't be confused. They're both true. All the sins in one sense are the same before God, and yet in another sense, they're not the same. I'll start with the latter one first. On the one hand, not all sins are the same before God. The Old Testament law makes this abundantly clear. Some transgressions required sacrifices and reparations to the harmed individual. Other offenses required death. If you did certain sins, you would be put to death. It doesn't matter if you want to offer sacrifice. It doesn't matter if you want to pay money. No, you must be put to death. Different sins require different punishments, and this can only be that because some sins were worse than others. Or listen to this specifically from Numbers 15. Numbers 15, verses 27 to 31. We see another distinction. It says, Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So the distinction there. Unintentional versus defiant sins. Both sins. And then Jesus says this in the New Testament. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging, will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. So sins do indeed differ in sinfulness. Rape is worse than lust. Sex with an animal is worse than heterosexual sex before marriage. Sacrificing your children to Moloch is worse than disciplining them in anger. Hearing God's word... And then disobeying God is worse than disobeying without hearing God's word. I don't think we can come up with a precise hierarchy of the severity of sins, but know that some sins are indeed worse than others. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, lest we think that those lesser sins, even what we might think of as respectable sins, that they're not a big deal to God and therefore not important for us to repent of or put to death, it's also true that all sins are the same in God's sight. All sins are a statement that God is not the treasure worthy of your entire devotion. All sins, no matter how small, they are idolatry. They all cause us to fall short of God's standard of perfection. They all make us lawbreakers. They all carry the same penalty, eternal death in hell. God's ping about your boss will send you to hell just as much as murder will. Complaining about your children merits hellfire just as much as incest. Living materialistically without thought of God will condemn you just as much as dedicating your life to blaspheming God and destroying his church. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. All sin is serious before God. All sin must be repented of whether that sin is overlooked by society or condemned by society. Any sin will kill you, unless that sin was already paid for when Christ was killed on the cross. So these two principles operate together. Some sins are worse than others, though all sins are an infinite affront to God. Therefore, while the sentence for any who sin is hell forever, the severity of that suffering in hell will depend on what kind and quantity of sins they committed. Both principles are together. It's also true of the flip side, as a side note. When it comes to the believer's reward, in one sense we all get the same thing, in another sense we get according to our works. We all have eternity with Christ, but we will receive greater or lesser rewards depending on how we labored for the Lord on earth. But let's get back to our original question. How do we compare to Sodom? Personally, communally, as a country? In one sense, we know that we are the same. We are the same as Sodom. We are just as much lawbreakers as they were, and we deserve the same punishment. It's only by God's mercy in saving us and calling us out from the city of destruction, as John Bunyan puts it in Pilgrim's Progress, that we can have any hope. When speaking of God's grace and salvation, Paul quotes... In Romans, he quotes Isaiah 1, verses 9 to 10, which reads, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Unless we become heirs of Abraham, unless God unilaterally chooses to be our God, to reveal himself to us, to bless us, to choose to love us and to care for us, we would perish like Sodom. Be glad that you have such a kind God. That you are an heir of the covenant of Abraham, if indeed you are. On the other hand, our sin is different from Sodom. Perhaps we are not as sinful. But I think it's more likely that we're worse. You may say, what? How's that possible? We read it, all those details. It's so explicitly wicked. How could we be worse? It may seem hard to imagine a more wicked place than Sodom, but listen to what God says to Israel in Lamentations 4.6. This is Jeremiah speaking. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment, and no hands were turned toward her. How could Israel be worse than Sodom? How could they have committed even greater perversions? Well, they did commit a lot of perversions, but I think the real reason is this. They were God's special people, a people likened to God as his bride, and they turned against God and adulterated themselves with other gods. They took God's blessings, and they used them as a way to serve the other gods. That's such a great affront. They had been given so much goodness from God. Their rejection of God was all the more heinous. Israel was worse than Sodom. And this is like Jesus, what he says to Capernaum in Matthew eleven twenty-three, And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus' own hometown, place which he ministered and did many miracles, was worse than Sodom. They probably didn't have the rampant perversity that we saw in Genesis 19, and yet it was worse than Sodom. Why? Why? can only be because the kingdom of God had so obviously appeared among them. The light of God had so directly shone upon them through God's Son, and they despised him. So let us consider our own state then. How many blessings do we enjoy from God in this country? How prevalent and available is the gospel of Jesus in our country? And yet how great is our communal rebellion and perversion in this country? How greatly is sin celebrated in our society despite all the blessings we have? We should also examine ourselves personally. How much generosity has God shown you in your life, allowing you to enjoy life, have friends, receive, com- receive comfort, have some measure of good health? How often has he made his word available to you by giving you the Bible, by being as part of this church? And in spite of all that, do you still refuse to repent of certain sin habits? Do you still think of them as too insignificant in God's sight to warrant serious mortification or repentance? Do you still refuse to take God himself as your great treasure, preferring the other things of the world? As Hebrew 2.3 says, and we would be, do well to take this to heart, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. God is too good and too just to not justly judge sin, especially the vast wickedness of continuing to rebel when God has given you and made available to you the sweet treasure of his Son. So we should examine ourselves. But if you adore Christ this morning, rejoice. God himself has rescued you from Sodom just like he rescued Lot. God has led you by the hand and caused you to do that which you were unable to do. He is your compassionate Savior and he has made himself your God. That's all the time we have for today. But uh, Let's look at our memory verse again. If you have other comments or questions, please see me afterwards. Next week we talk about Abraham and Isaac. Here's our memory verse. Please read it with me. I have two or three weeks more to memorize this verse. Well, start reading together. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Let's pray. God, you are so great. God, oh, you are so merciful. We see it displayed to Lot and to Abraham, and yet, God, we know it is also being displayed to us. You have brought us out of Sodom. You have unilaterally chosen to reveal and bless yourself to us. We did nothing to deserve it. Yet, God, you just have lavished your care on us, lavished your compassion on us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being so lovely. Thank you for loving us. Lord, cause us to love you more. Help us understand these truths so that we are provoked to just great love of you. Oh Lord, I pray, God, you know, I, I don't want people to feel bad when they don't need to. I don't want them to think they haven't repented when they have. Yeah, God, I pray that we would, that each person here, anyone who listens to this message, will seriously consider their own hearts before you whether they've slipped into thinking that some sins don't matter. That's not a big deal. Oh Lord, I pray that we would put all those things off so that we can just enjoy you totally. Bless the rest of the service today. Amen.